This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. I do a lot of marriage counseling and uh, have for many, 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 many years. And I've noticed that when you do marriage counseling, that everybody bases their current situation in their marriage based on what it has been, good or bad, since they've been married. In other words, you take someone who is from the outside looking at them, realizing how abused they are. Their, you know, their husband comes home and he you know, slaps them around some and uses vile profanity and they're living in fear all the time. And, and then they come to marriage counseling and the wife says something like this, you know, things are really better. Really. My mind, I'm thinking, if they're better, it means the husband got saved, there's no more physical abuse, no more verbal abuse, no more anything. He's treating her as a daughter of Christ. And, and all. But in her vernacular, it's the, you know, he hasn't hit me in a week. Things are really better. As a matter of fact, they're almost as good as they've ever been. Now, he still uses profanity and he still verbally abuses me, but he hasn't physically touched me anymore. So based on my frame of reference, things are wonderful in our marriage. And we look at it from the outside, maybe being married to someone who would never even consider doing that and going, are you out of your mind? Don't you realize what you lost, what, what you're not receiving? I mean, you're, you're settling for something far beyond what God had planned you. In my favorite movie of all time, Facing the Giants, there's this scene with a field goal kicker who um, kicks his first field goal. And his father, of course, is a man that's, that's crippled and he's in a wheelchair and teaching at the local college. And, and so the son, oh, you know, I'm not any good. I probably can't do this. And he gets ready to kick the field goal and he misses his field goal and game's over. Father's in his van lowering the ramp so he can get his wheelchair in there. And his son comes with his shoulders kind of slumped over and looks at his father and says this, I knew I was going to miss it before I even kicked it. And the father said, if you accept failure, that's all you'll ever get. He says, I can't walk. What am I supposed to do, give up? And it's true in our spiritual lives. If we accept the status quo, if we accept things as they are, then they're never going to get better. Never. We're just going to realize that I guess that's okay. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it should be. And who really cares? But it's like, it's like being in a marriage where, again, another example. I was asking uh, somebody about their marriage and uh, about on a scale from like 1 to 10, because I'm really big on the 1 to 10 things. And uh, they were saying, after the husband had the wife do something incredibly selfish, the wife said, my marriage is better than it's ever been. Really? So what do you mean right now? Oh, it's like a 10. 
because she basically capitulated to the sin of her husband. And I'm looking at it at, at, from my vantage point, and I'm going, you've gone from a 0.5 to a 2. And you think it's a 10. When you realize how truly great it could be if you wouldn't settle for less. Make sense? Talking about marriage, because we can all relate to it. When we talk about getting filled with the Holy Spirit, some of us kind of tune out. I don't know what that means. It seems kind of weird. It's kind of Pentecostal. I don't want to, I don't want to mess with that. And when we talk about revival, we also say, well, I don't need a revival. I'm okay like I am right now. And plus, our whole society has changed the idea of what revival means anyway, because all revival means is you hire an evangelist to come in here so that half the Sunday crowd will show up Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night to hear a message about salvation to people who are already saved. True? And we call that a revival. It's kind of like having a missions conference. We're bringing missionaries up here, and they show artifacts that they've gotten on the mission field, and we kind of ooh and ah about that, and they tell us geographic and demographic information about the country they're serving in. And we think, by listening to that, that we've gone into all the world and made disciples of all nations. No, it doesn't work that way. Revival will only take place when you realize you need it when the church becomes dissatisfied with their status quo. Before I begin sharing this message to you, I, I need to remind you the church error in which we live. I need to remind you the church mindset that is in the DNA of every single one of us. We're raised in this era and this, this period of the lukewarm church, of the Laodicean church. We spent months going through the book of Revelation, showing how that all fit. This is us. This is the prevailing winds of the church today. This is a stream in which we're being forded downstream with. I mean, to, to walk counterculture to this is to be counterculture to what you feel is appropriate in your heart, what you're satisfied with, and what the church itself will tell you you're, you should be satisfied with. And here's what it says. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. His letter to the church at Laodicea, which means, of course, the people rule. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. I know how you have manifested the faith that you claim in Christ on a day-in, day-out basis. I know your holiness. I know your lack of holiness. I know your fervency. I know your works. When I look at your works, I realize that you're neither cold nor hot. I mean, you just sit, you know, I'm not really on fire for Jesus, but I'm not cursing Jesus either. I'm just kind of stuck in the middle. I wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you say, and we talked about the deception, we talked about this on Tuesday night, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of nothing, especially the Holy Spirit, especially a revival in my life, especially more spiritual fruit. I know I don't need anything. I'm totally self-sufficient in my own right. And God looks at us and says, do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? What do I do? Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments representing holiness. 
that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you could see exactly who you are and what you lack and what I want for you. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's why he's doing this. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Well, where are you, Christ? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not an evangelistic verse about him standing on the outside of your heart and knocking, and if you will open your heart, Jesus will come in and commune with you, although we use it that way. In the context, Jesus is standing on the outside of the church, knocking, wanting to get in. You don't need me. You've manufactured all the stuff yourself. You've used every possible secular reason and way to get people in. Your marketing skills are incredible, but there's no power. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, not the church collective, but if any individual hears my voice, that's what I'm hoping you will do today. And if you do hear his voice, that you will open the door. I will come into him and dine with him, have fellowship with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes this prevailing DNA lukewarmness in every one of us, I will grant you sit with me on my throne. Golly. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Last week we talked about revival. We talked about the fact that in order for you to have a revival, you need to understand that you're lacking something. You have to have a revival in order to have a revival. And we looked at Psalm 85 where it talks about reviving us again and letting us feel and experience something maybe that we've lost. For most of us, a revival will take place when we at least get back to a 10. If we at least get back to a relationship with Christ that we once have had that we walked away from. You know, you know, we haven't walked away into total apostasy, but we walked away into a lack of fervency. And I used to, you love, did you love Jesus more in the past than you love now? Some of us would realize that's true. Most of us would say, well, no, I actually love him more. Well, how do you manifest that? Well, I don't manifest my love for him more today than I did back then. Back then, I used to witness a lot. Back then, I used to read my Bible a lot. Back then, my prayer life was so much better than it was. Back then, there were things in my life that I said no to that I gladly brought back into my life and embraced. Back then, sanctification and holiness and walking away from sin was a serious thing. Back then, when somebody would use God's name in vain in my presence, it bothered me. Now, I watch it daily on television. It doesn't bother me at all. So it's not like we, we, you know, we walked away from from him totally into apostasy where we don't believe in him anymore, but we have in our fervency to him. So in other words, we love him with words only and not with deeds like we used to. Well, if you've been in a marriage, how does that fly? How much love do you feel as a wife when your husband tells you he loves you but never shows you he loves you? Or as a husband, does your wife have to tell you every day, I love you, for you to feel love? Or does the things that she does when she shows you she loves you, does that not speak volumes? Words are cheap. Actions cost. In order for us to receive sanctification, we have to have that desire. In order for us to walk in holiness, we have to have that desire. In order for us to experience revival, we have to have that desire. Talked about this last week. 
What does revival look like? We've never experienced it. The church in America, as far as I know, has never experienced it. I've never seen it. I've never even heard about it, except these kind of emotional get-togethers where we hoop and holler and dance around and think somehow that's revival. Being revived and filled with the Holy Spirit means to take God at his word, trust him completely, no matter what, come what may. If his word says it, then I'm going to align my life up with it, irrespective of what it cost me. I'll follow him wherever he leads. Well, I, I will, Lord. I sing the song, but I don't. I'll surrender to him whatever he asks. I've already given him the stuff that I don't care about, but the stuff that I want, there's no way. You know, we treat God like we treat church. I, I find this so amazing that, um, you know, you're, you buy a new bedroom set. And you've got this busted up old bedroom set or, or, or sofa or dining room table. Say a sofa. And this busted up one that you don't even want, can't sell on Craigslist, and you don't want to take the time to haul it to the dump. So you know what you do with it? You give it to the church. Remember those days? The church can use it. Church can always use something I refuse to sit on because I'm better than that. And we do exactly the same thing with God. I'm not going to surrender to him the stuff that means something to me I'm going to surrender to him the stuff that I don't really care about. I don't care what he does with it because that's not my heart and my passion. Or as we talked about last Sunday, being dependent on him. No, to surrender my will and my self-determination and being able to call my own shots. No, no, I don't want to be dependent on him. Instead, I want to only be dependent on me, but I want his power to empower me to do what I want to do. And if I ever get in a jam, I expect you there like a genie in the bottle to take care of me. And it doesn't work that way. Since we have really never experienced revival, and our nation has had the first and second great awakening and, and other revivals that took place back during the Philadelphia church age, back when the time when people loved the Lord and listened to what it said, we really don't know what revival looks like, so we've redefined it to be some sort of meeting that lasts three or four days. Or I've been online this week, and I've looked at, at ministries that always talk about revival. You know, our ministry here is committed to worldwide revival to see Jesus Christ. And all those ministries are, are one guy doing conferences. You know, it's, it's pretty much about me. It's my videos. It's my YouTube. I'm going to do all the conferences. People are going to come. Sometimes you have to pay to actually go get revival. It's all about, it's all about the, the mass setting rather than the personal revival that, that we found in the first and second great awakening. So we don't even know what it's like anymore. So I started doing some research and I started looking at some testimonies of people who experienced those first and second great awakenings. And I, I wanted to know how they viewed revival. What was revival like for them when true revival took place in our nation? There was a man named William Sprague who lived in 1795 to 1876. He's a Presbyterian minister in Albany, New York, ministered there for 40 years. Doesn't happen much today. And he wrote a book about the first great awakening in 1832. And what he did, they didn't have blogs back then or podcasts or stuff of that. And what they do is they would pass letters back and forth. To each other. So he would ask, you experienced the first great awakening, you knew what it was like, and he would contact these pastors who were part of that, and they would write letters to him describing what true revival was like in the first and second great awakening. One particular man, a man named Francis Whalen, who was a Baptist pastor and the president of Brown University, wrote a letter. He would experience this revival, and here's what he says. This is what revi true revival does 
to the community, to the church, to the individual believer, and even to the lost person. So I believe in the existence of revival of religion as much as I believe in any other fact, either physical or moral. By revival of religions, I mean special seasons in which the minds of men within a certain district or in a certain congregation are more than usually susceptible of impressions for the exhibition of moral truth. For example, ministers are more than usual desirous of the conversion of men. More pastors preach salvation messages than how to have your best life now. They possess habitually an unusual power of presenting the simple truth of the gospel directly to the the conscience of their hearers and feel a particular consciousness of their own weakness and insufficiency and at the same time a perfect reliance upon the efficiency of the gospel through the agency of the Spirit to convert men. If we change that language so it would be more reading today, It would simply say that ministers all of a sudden are more concerned about the salvation of souls than they are about putting people in these large stadiums. And they realize that the only way that can happen is through the presentation of the simple truths of the gospel. Christians, church members, during periods of revival are characterized by an unusual spirit of penitence, of confession of sin, and of prayer, and a desire for more holiness, and especially by a tender concern for the salvation of souls. Does it sound like the church today? Does it sound like you or me? And if it doesn't, we're in desperate need of revival. Unconverted persons are more desirous to hear the gospel, and particularly the plainest and simplest explanation of it. They readily listen to conversation on the subject and seem to expect it because Christians are talking about it. Truths which they have frequently heard with total unconcern, they now hear with solemn and fixed attention. And in many cases, for days together, scarcely a sermon will be preached or an exhortation offered which is not made effectual by the conviction or conversion of one or more souls. Book of Acts, chapter 2, the Lord is adding daily to the group of people that were saved. One message, 3,000 people saved, and a bunch of them didn't even understand the language. How does that happen? Do you want to see that? I mean, I want to see that before I die, don't you? I mean, what else, what else do we devote our life to? Our jobs? You that are younger? I used to think like you did. I'll devote my job, my life to my job and my profession because somehow in the end, it'll, they'll take care of me. They won't. They won't. Then I'm just going to take care of me. I'll, I'll develop this big 401k plan and I'll make as much money as I can and funnel all the money and funnel all the money in there. So when I get to be 65 years old or whatever retirement age is today, then I will be able to sit back and eat, drink, and be merry and not do anything but the things I want to do. Oh, that sounds like a mature believer, doesn't it? That's what we're supposed to do when we get to a certain age where we have experience of wisdom is to show all the younger people full of zeal who don't have a clue what we know is that, that, you know, when you get to our age, you just quit. You become self-centered. You have this big church with all these buses and the buses are designed to take old people to plays in Branson, Missouri, and, and, and God forbid anything goes wrong with that. I mean, I've been there. What's happening here? What about revival? What about... 
What about a total dependency on the Lord? What happens then? As I shared with you, if you really desire revival, everything has to change. Since we have never as a church or a nation, never, experienced a true move of God or a spirit-led revival in our lifetime, we can safely assume that whatever we're doing ain't working. Whatever we're doing somehow is falling short. Our worship services are falling short. Our, our commitment to Christ is obviously falling short. Our prayer life must not be what God wants it to be. Now, granted, a revival is a sovereign move of God. God chooses when he's going to pour his spirit out, and you can't make it happen, but we can sure set the, the table and do everything we can not to hinder that move. True? But the church doesn't. Instead, we're concerned about, you know, having our tweets you know, posted everywhere and, and being popular and having books published and, and, and having these massive stadiums full of people because that makes us special and we manufacture some sort of feel good kind of thing. I, I find, again, I'm a, I'm a student of the church. I look at websites and listen to sermons all week long and I'm shocked over the last 10 years. You go to any church, literally any church that has a membership over, I don't know, 800, maybe a thousand. And you go on their website, and the website, when you go to the church, what does this church stand for? What does this church do? What is this church commitment to Christ? How are they emulating the Lord Jesus Christ? And and they're all pretty much the same. On the very top, you'll have this, you know, full wing, full wing, full length, like, image that kind of rotates around four or five different images to give you a feel of what the church is. And the first three of them are always the worship band. Always. Blue lights, guys up there in skinny jeans playing the guitar, another guy looking like everybody does with the beard and the hair and and all that kind of stuff, you know, doing this. And then maybe you'll have a picture of the pastor, not behind a pulpit, you know, just just being just kind of a cool guy, just kind of just talking to you. Then you'll have pictures of people in front of the coffee bar, you know, getting coffee and fellowshipping, having a good time. Maybe you'll have a picture about the nursery or the youth and all that. Yeah, we got everything for your family. We got really cool music and we got a really cool pastor that you're really going to like and he's going to preach like really cool messages that are going to make you feel really cool about who you are. What does the church believe? Right, the church all the way down to the bottom. Statement of faith. Then you click it. And then sometimes it's rather large, which means it's eight bullet points. You know, sometimes it's really small, like, you know, we believe in God and we believe in you. And I'm okay with that. And people flock to that. There's no, no commitment. There's just kind of a, a feel-good kind of thing. And, and then we wonder why we're trying to manufacture an emotion, same emotion that you get when you go to a secular concert, rather than a spirit-led movement. Because we've redefined revival. Everything has to change. We've got to rethink it all. We've got to rethink who this God is that we claim to serve. You know, he's not some, you know, my homeboy or he's not somebody that, you know, we just put a picture of him on a T-shirt and walk around and think that's pretty cool. What a violation of, of like his holiness in the Old Testament. I mean, the Jews would not even pronounce his name or if they were going to write his name when they translated the scriptures, they would come to Yahweh or Jehovah and Elohim and they would stop and they would ceremonially make sure that they were clean and righteous and pray. Then they would come back to the scripture and write his name and then stop and have a, a sanctification time and continue on. 
Well, that's just stupid. Really? That's just honoring. Well, we don't even do that. We, you know, where's the Bible? I don't know. You know, we, we don't even care anymore. About us. I mean, who are we? Independent contractors? Are we sinners saved by grace? Are we, are we do losses? Do we actually belong to him? Or about church? When we come together and do church, is it about him? Or is it about us? Well, we kind of want it to be about him, but if it's not about us, nobody will come. Or sin. Big drawback, and this is what we've been focusing on. I mean, what is sin? And how bad is sin? You know, we can we can mellow that out by calling it sanctification, living a holy life. But I mean, what areas of our life are sinful? Is our is our our mind is the things we do. I mean, I know that all of us have reached a certain point in our life that we've forsaken enough sin that we're comfortable. There are other sins, of course, that the Lord wants us to embrace, but since we're not hot and we're not cold, we're so comfortable where we're at right now in lukewarm bath water. I mean, the Lord says, I wish you were either hot, on fire for me so I could use you, or cold so I could show you your sin and redeem you, but because we're just okay. That as a church, he's on the outside, and towards us, that, that kind of spiritual attitude, he wants to vomit, he wants to vomit us out of his mouth. If you remember, we talked about how to begin the process of experiencing revival by learning how to be filled with the Spirit. Not just on a mountaintop time, but, but every single day. And I'm really surprised. I'm really surprised that, um, that God hasn't done something so incredible in somebody's life in here when we've been talking about being filled by the Spirit that you've been so overwhelmed that you could not just not share it with us. Because since we've been talking about this, that hasn't happened. I mean, so nobody's, a couple people have called me, but nobody's come up and said, man, God, I'm telling you, I, I, I get it. I got it. It's incredible. I just got to show me something. I, 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 I got to tell somebody. Well, tell me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised. The depth, even in my own life, the depth of the lukewarmness of the layout of seeing church age in our own DNA. Man, when I'm there on Sunday, man, I'm so motivated, and you're so right. And then I walk out that door, and the world starts pounding me with stuff it wants me to do. And that voice is louder than his voice. Always will be. Always will be. His voice is a still, small voice that you have to choose to listen to. Those other voices will drown him out. And I embrace those because, you know... It's our best life now. Three keys. Desire. I mean, you got to hunger and thirst for it. And if you don't have that desire, ask the Lord to give you that desire. He will. And he'll give you that desire, the hard part, by telling you to jettison the stuff that you have a desire for more than him. And some of that stuff in our culture may be money. It may be your free time. It may be your autonomy. Maybe your job. Or your house or the things that you want to do. and All the chores and all the things that we I just got to do them. No, you don't. You don't. Everything we do is a choice. And he may to help build up that desire. Instead of giving you more desire for something we don't have, he may begin taking away from us the things that we have a desire for. And as he's done that in my life, I have kicked and screamed. No. Isn't there another way? 
our sanctification, what we've been dealing with, holy living. It's not like, it's not like we have to beg the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. That's the default position as a believer. What we have to do is remove the roadblocks that hinder him from moving, from grieving his spirit. Well, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty honorable guy. I really don't have that much of a sin in my life. As a matter of fact, when I pray, you know, I really don't feel like, um, like uh, you know, God's telling me that there's things I need to confess. That's the greatest form of deception I've ever seen in my life. That means that your holiness is equal with Him. I mean, First John chapter one says, if we say we have no sin, we lie, and we make Him a liar. Every one of us struggles with stuff, but it's whether or not we refuse. Whether we're going to deal with that or not. And then, of course, faith and how that all fits in and what we're talking about. But to fully embrace sanctification, you must really have a healthy understanding of what the Scripture sees about the magnitude of our sins. My sins used to be a whole lot worse than they are now based on man. I mean, I used to do things that everybody considers a sin. Lost people and saved people, so it was really easy to forsake those because there's peer pressure involved. You know, if I do this kind of stuff, then my wife will get mad at me. You guys will be mad at me. My kids will say, what's the matter with you? So instead, there's sins that are kind of culturally accepted within the church or sins that we don't tell anybody about, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of just stuff that we do by ourselves. But if we want revival to take place, we need to understand what those sins actually are. So I was asking the Lord how to show that today, how to express that today. And this week he took me to Isaiah. So if you'll tune to Isaiah chapter 1. Unbelievable book. Incredible. Let me go ahead and give you the summary of Isaiah. And I want you to see the parallel between Isaiah and the church, or Isaiah in your life and my life. Book of Isaiah, the truth is the fact that God called a special people to represent him, and those people were the Jews. Has God called a special people to represent him today? Yes, it's called the church, and of which you and I are members. Better than that, God has called a special person to represent him. Do you know who that is? You and me, individually. Corporately, we come together as a group of people that he's called to represent, just like he did the Jews in Isaiah's day. But individually, he called my wife. He called me. He called Nick. He called Laren, he called every one of us as individuals to represent him. But as Israel, they became rebellious and even apostate, and they failed. Well, maybe we won't go as far as saying that we have become apostate, but the church pretty much has. I mean, the church now embraces almost every single heresy out there. Hey, uh, what does God feel about gay marriage? What does God feel about abortion? What does God feel about all these kind of things? And, and there it is. There's this church says it's okay, and this church says it's okay, and this church says it's not okay. I don't even speak for one voice anymore. Much of the church is apostate. And what happens is, as a church goes over to the dark side, they never come back. Never. You have a thousand churches... 150 of them go to the dark side. Next year is going to be 160. The year after, those 160 never come back. It always grows. Bad company corrupts good character or good morals. Well, God, you, you chose me. 
From the foundation of the world, you gave me your spirit. You equipped me. You told me I was complete in you, that you said that I can have the mind of Christ. You, you, you've done everything for me. I mean, even in my lostness, that you filled me with your spirit. I was so overwhelmed with it when it happened. But, you know, you gave me a calling that I'm now an ambassador of yours. This world is not my home, but I've sure worked hard to make myself fit in. I failed, just like Israel failed. So therefore, there are now enemies of God that assault Israel in the book of Isaiah, and also assault you and I. In Isaiah, they're represented by two nations, Assyria and Babylon. Attacks the northern kingdom and attacks the southern kingdom. And then it talks about, in the book of Isaiah, God's judgment and the, ex, and the ultimate restoration of his nation. And if you read that, you'll find it applies so much to the church that it's almost like he's writing this letter to you and I today, corporately as well as individually, because we truly are living in parallel times to the times of Isaiah. Why is revival so important? Because what I'm about to show you is how God feels about apostate believers, how he feels about those people who have left their first love, how he feels about those people who are not hot and not cold, but are somehow lukewarm. Because the vomitous out of the mouth thing doesn't seem to be a motivator enough for the church today. And so if you turn to Isaiah, you find it's absolutely frightening. So if you would, let's just read with me. Make a few comments in Isaiah chapter 1. This is a vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. What he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of God. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah, the southern kingdoms. This is a period of about 81 years. So during this reign, this is what the Lord spoke to Isaiah about. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I mean, people say that God is only revealed as a father in the New Testament. When Jesus says, you know, my father. It's not true. He's revealed here in the Old Testament. I have nourished and brought up children. And they have rebelled against me. As a parent, if you've had children that have walked away from your love and walked away from your teaching and walked away from your sacrifices that you've given to them, walk away from the nurturing and everything that, they've, that you've tried to teach them and they've gone and want nothing to do with you anymore. They're going to live their life out there. and you, like, the, like the father whose prodigal son left him. And you say, I have brought up children. I nurtured children. I sacrificed for them. I did that my very best. But they rebelled against me against the Father who did nothing more than just want to love them. You have no idea. If you've ever experienced that, you do have an idea of the intense pain that comes with that. Pain that God feels when he raises up a nation of Israel or calls you by name before the foundation of the world and fills you with his Spirit and forgives all your sins because of the sacrifice of his own Son. I have raised up children and slaughtered my firstborn. And the ones that were recipients of that sacrifice have rebelled against me. I'm shocked. I don't understand. That, that's so contrary to nature. Look at verse 3. The ox knows, this is yada. 
This is the same word as gnosko. This is knowing in an experiential way. It's knowing, it's choosing to place your favor upon. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib or feeding trough. But Israel, the church, Steve, does not know. My people do not consider. Strange, um, strange construction in the English. What it literally means is this. Israel does not know me. My people do not even consider me. They don't care what their actions are doing to me. They don't care how it hurts and grieves me. We talk about the fact that we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, and then we do it every day. And when we think about grieving, we think about, oh, well, shouldn't have done that. We never think of grieving as moaning and anguish and crying. That's part of it. That's what the word means. It's a parallel passage in Malachi. Matter of fact, turn to Malachi chapter 1. Let me, let me just show you some of this. Parallel passage in Malachi, where the Lord is, is saying the same things to the last book of the, uh, of the Old Testament. Verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I'm the father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To who? To you priests. To the ones that in the Old Testament were specifically set apart to be able to reveal God to the congregation. You and I are a kingdom of priests. In other words, the same priestly functions that Old Testament priests have are the same things that you and I now have with the Holy Spirit. Whereas my reverence says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, wait, wait a second, that's kind of heavy-handed, God. In what way have we despised your name? Verse 7, you offered defiled food on my altar, and you say, in what way have we defiled it? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is that not evil? Offer it to your governor, to your boss, to your best friend, to someone you want to have a relationship with. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? So here's a guy that has a flock of sheep. And the Lord says that we're to offer our best to him. But instead of offering our best to him, we keep the best to us, and we offer him the stuff we can't even sell at the market. I mean, what they would do is they would sell the good cattle, the cattle that wasn't so good they would butcher and eat themselves. The worst cattle that they don't even want to butcher and eat, we'll offer that to the Lord because he needs to be satisfied with our junk. Verse 9, so go ahead, he says, but now, after you've done that, now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? You expect God to pour out his blessing on you when you treat him with such disdain, said the lords of hosts. Who is there even among you who would not shut the door, that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I mean, it's just a haphazard view of worship. I have no pleasure 
in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Why? For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, but you, the Jews, the priests, the church, the believers, it's not even great among you. In every place, incest shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, said the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. Oh, I have to read my Bible again. Oh, I didn't have time for that this week because I had other things I needed to do. Oh, I'm supposed to pray with my kids. I'm supposed to have family devotions. I'm, I'm supposed to, to you know, live like I'm truly a believer. Oh, I'm supposed to go to church or Tuesday night or a women's prayer meeting. Oh, what a, what a burden it is. What weariness it is. And you bring, verse 13, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, said the Lord? Curses be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow. God, I will serve you for the rest of my life, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Rather frightening, isn't it? If you would go back to Isaiah Exactly what he's saying here in verse number three. The ox knows its owner. And the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Watch this. At last. Or literally it means, whoa. Sinful nation. There's a seven point indictment here. Against Israel. Against the priest. Against God's ambassadors. Against us. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden, burdened with iniquity or guilt, a race or brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, for they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away backwards. They have walked away from Him. Why should you be stricken again? Why do I have to bring my chastisement upon you again? You will revolt more and more. It doesn't seem to have any effect upon you. The whole or every head is sick, and the whole or every heart faints. This is moral and character, and this is actions. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness or wholeness or health in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying, raw or bleeding sores. They had not been closed up or bound up or soothed with ointment. And as a result, your country is desolate, your city are burns with fire, strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, you should be living in the massive house, but instead you've got this little shanty booth in a vineyard or as a hut in a garden of cucumbers. Unless the Lord of hosts has left us a very small remnant. Paul quotes this in Romans 9.29. And this is who we are. 
This is what the Lord wants you to be, this remnant. Unless the Lord of hosts has left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. So hear the word of the Lord. Do not speak, just listen. You rulers of Sodom that you have become, and give ears to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? To what purpose are your religious services to me? Without your heart sold out to me. Is it to gain my favor? Is it to forestall my wrath? What is the purpose of what we do when we come together as a congregation? Or when you have your private devotions at home? I mean, what is the point? I've had enough of burnt offerings of ram. I've had enough of the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me or when you come to see my face, who has required all this stuff at your hands to trample my court? Bring no more futile, empty, vain sacrifices. Your incense, which is representative of prayer, is an abomination to me. The new moons, the monthly, the monthly, the weekly Sabbaths, and the yearly calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity. And the sacred meetings. Your new moons and appointed feast. I mean, those are the appointed feast of Israel. You know, the feast of unleavened bread and Passover and those feasts. Ah, my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood. That's sobering, is it not? And this is the state of Israel. This is the state of the church. And from God's perspective, it may be the state of you and I. We consider how we have taken for granted all that he has done. And we're satisfied at something less than he wants us to be. God, what you offer me, I'd rather have what I have than what you've offered me. What an abomination to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So what do we do? What do we do? Now watch this. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Every one of these passages has to do with living a holy, righteous life, forsaking sin and doing the things that we're supposed to do as ambassadors of him. Put away the evil doing before my eyes. You should examine every area of your life. Cease to do evil. Learn from me to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. You know any believers who do that? Do you do that? Do we do that? Does the church do that today? I mean, we don't cease from doing evil. We cease from doing agreed upon evil. You know, we shouldn't... Uh, Shouldn't murder anybody, got that. Child porn's out. Porn, not necessarily. Child porn's out. We, um, you know, abortion, uh, we can murder people just as long as they're still in the womb or partially delivered. Church is okay with that. You know, you're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, but that's okay because you don't want to get married to someone you may not be sexually compatible with. And so that's all right. And it's okay to have an adulterous affair because God wants you to be happy. You don't have to be married to that abusive man or that battle-axed woman. Just go find somebody else. 
And even when it comes to redefining the sexes, that's okay in the church. Watch this, though. If we want the blessing from the Lord, it takes a move on our part. Watch this. Same verse. And what it means, you wash yourself. Doesn't say he'll do that for you. You wash yourself. You make yourself clean. You put away the evil doings, the evil from your doings from before my face. It doesn't mean that God, if you don't want me to watch this show, then cancel my cable right in front of me. Oh, still there. I guess it's okay. And God doesn't do that. God doesn't turn us into robots. We give glory to God when we choose to do this. You, you, Steve, you cease to do evil. You learn to do good. You seek justice. You rebuke the oppressor. Stand for those who are fatherless. Plead the case for the widows. You be my ambassador. It is you who is going to do this. And then we howl. How? How does that even happen? And that's when the Lord tells us what we are, but what he wants to make us. This is who you are, and this is who you shall be when my spirit flows through your veins and you experience revival. Are, shall be, are, shall be. Present tense, Future tense. This is who you are, and this is who you could be. Come now. Let us reason together. I, I can almost see, I can see me having a conversation with my children. You, 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 you. As a dad. Okay. Come on. Come now. Let, let's talk about this. Let's reason together. My goal is not to condemn you. My goal is for you to become all that I have designed for you to be. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Look, look, you're messing up really bad. Your skins are, or your sins are like scarlet. They're like blood. They're, they're, they're a blot on a, on a clean robe. I mean, they're, they're, it's, like, it's like Lazarus' grave clothes. But if you will trust me, if you will yield to me, if you will go back, as the book of Revelation says, and do what you did in the first, and they will be white as in their vernacular snow. Can't think of anything more white and pure than snow. Your, your sins are like crimson. Again, that blood red. But they will be like wool. If you will, if you will have a desire to live a godly life and let me live it through you, and place your faith in me. And here's how it's done. This is if, then promises. There's a very next verse. There's a, there's a condition and a promise. You meet the condition, you get the promise. There's an if, then here, and there's an if, then here. Watch this. If the condition, you are willing and obedient. Now note this. One is an emotional decision, the other one is a physical decision. I am willing, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to, to study your word. I'm willing to live according to your word. I'm, living to, I'm willing to live my life the way you want me to. And then I'm faced with a choice to make. 
and I'm going to be obedient to you. If you are willing and obedient, and I will bless you. Israel, I will let you eat of the good of the land. Your famine spiritually will be over. But if you refuse and rebel like you have in the past, you shall be devoured by the sword. You will face my condemnation. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let me just read a few more verses. Verse 21. This is almost, he's talking about Israel here. Or he's talking about Jerusalem, but idiomatically, it's, it's the church. It's the, the, it's the place where he has chosen to reveal himself to the nation. How the faithful city, the faithful church has become a, a harlot. Not a, I mean, a harlot is one who was one time faithful, but is no longer and has gone after another lover. It was full of justice and righteousness logged at past tense in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. What you once had a value has become worthless. Your wine mixed with water. What, what was once pure is now compromised. Your princes are rebellious, a companion of thieves. Everyone loves bribes. The word love there in the Septuagint, the Greek word is agapeo. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards, popularity, megachurches, doing what I want to do. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Now watch this. I've never seen this before, and I'm going to close with this. Why is revival important? Because sometimes we have this faulty view of God that he's just some, you know, big old grandfather up there that's going to love us no matter what we do. And, you know, there's passages that we specifically, we specifically don't look at, such as God is angry with sinners every day and stuff of that nature. Watch what happens here. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, "Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries people that are against him, and take vengeance on my enemies. And I will turn my hand against you. Which means we have now become his adversaries and his enemies. Thoroughly purge away your dross and take away your aloe. And this is just the impurities and, and what God wanted. Therefore, The Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. There's three names here for God. This may even imply the Trinity. And I love this. Ah, it's almost like God is, you know, I need a break from all this pressure. Again, I'm speaking from human terms. I just, I, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Ah, or ah, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know what? I'm going to remove the irritants out of my face. You know, I've given you access, bold access through the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ, but I'm going to rid myself of my adversaries. I'm going to rid them. They're gone. I don't want to mess with them. I'm moving them away and take vengeance on my enemies. And every one of us in Israel back then would have said, yes, God, because your enemies are our enemies. And then he says the next phrase, and I will turn my hand against you. And the implication is the fact that we now have become, Israel has now become because of their sin and their apostate and, and the fact that they're, 
not making their self clean and their, their, their hands are full of blood and, and they're not ceasing to do evil and they're not putting away evil from the side of the Lord and they're living in this compromise, lukewarmness that the Lord wants to vomit out of their mouth. It's almost like they, they have become enemies. And I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away. And then he goes on to talk about what he will do, restoring judges and stuff of that nature. But I'm, I'm just going to stop here for time's sake. When you understand the condition of our sin, and we truly see it from who God is and what our sin does to him and has done to him, and what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit, you know, we've, I, I, I myself, I flippantly throw that phrase around. Well, I guess the Holy Spirit left. Ha, ha, ha. Why? Because what if it was like my brother or my wife and I said something up here, or one of you, I said something up here that was so egregious that it grieved you to the point that you couldn't even be in fellowship with me anymore and you just walked out. I have to get away. I'm hurt so bad by what Steve said. I would be horrified. Would we not? I'd run after you trying to restore that relationship and apologize profusely for what I said. Well, we do that to the Holy Spirit every single day, and for most believers, it doesn't even bother us. Revival is important because if you will just take a look at our nation right now, we are under the judgment of God, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, just what happened in Washington this last week is like, these people are crazy. I mean, it's crazy. What's crazy about it is the news media, the primary news media, follows right along. I mean, it's just insane what's going on. It's only going to lead to the worse and worse things. And if you'll, again, if you'll spend some time just reading newspapers and, and journals from foreign countries as they actually look at the United States and, and view us more objectively than we view ourselves, because MSNBC says one thing and Fox News says another, and where's the truth here? The reality is that we're in a boatload of trouble. I mean, we really are. And it seems like that the crystallization of the scapegoat is becoming the church. Day after day after day after day, we see things happening and things said about the church that have never been said before, and nobody says anything and nobody cares because we're pretty much guilty of what they say. Same thing happened in Nazi Germany. But the judgment comes, and you need to have that kind of relationship with him, that kind of intimacy with him that you can trust him even during dark times, that you can be satisfied with whatever he allows you to have and be satisfied with whatever he takes away. Whatever lot your life is, if he's sovereign, God, if you want me to suffer, I'll suffer for you. If you want me to, to abound, I'll abound for you. You know, Whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, I will always do what you want me to do because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Unless that can become your breath, because your intimacy is so tight with him, it's going to get tough. We have a history of this. We have Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they responded under that kind of thing. We have Moses and Elijah. We've got thousands of others, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of other believers who are living this way in other countries, but not here. We have got to... We've got to... Be ready. I was amazed this week as I was reading the account of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And it was the difference between a big-time pastor and a small-time pastor. We only know what the big-time pastors say because 
They're the ones that write the articles, and they're on all the Facebook posts, and hey, there's Stephen Furtick, and there's you know Joel Osteen, and there's all the big-time pastors. And, and I, was, I was reminded of the story where Elijah, who's a big-time pastor, I mean, Elijah was the one that God uses to confront them on Mount Carnal, 450 prophets of Baal, and fire came down from heaven. It was really incredible. And all of a sudden, rain came, and he girded himself up, and he ran 26 miles from where he was to the uh, Jezreel, to Jerusalem. And then, and then, uh, uh, then the queen, of course, said that uh, because of what you've done, you're going to die. Do you remember? And depression hit the big-time pastor. You know, the focus, focus of God, you know, deals with these heroes that we think are most important, and they are, and that they receive their successes and their failures, and so he crawls up under this branch and wants to die. Wants to die. And his cry was this. I'm the only one left. It's just me, and they're going to kill me. Everybody else has run. I haven't. I've stood firm, but I'm at the end of my wits right now. I can't take this anymore. I need a fresh vision of you. And we always preach the part about him standing at the mouth of the cave and God passes by. And he's not in the wind and not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but he's in the still small voice. Do you remember? But we miss the fact that the Lord says, um, you're not the only one, big time pastor. As a matter of fact, I got 7,000 in just in Jerusalem alone who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You don't know who they are, but God does. That's who you are. That's who I am. We don't have to be the big guy on the corner. We're one of those 7,000 that's refused under whatever personal persecution they've gone to, to bow their knee to Baal. And when you compare that, there's 7,001. What happens to be Elijah? That's who we are. That's what God wants to do. That's how revival takes place when there's this hidden mass of people who are serving the Lord often in anonymity, often without anybody knowing about it, but they're serving the Lord and refuse to bow their knee to Him and revival is breaking out in their own little sphere of influences. It's not just for the big guys. It's for every single one of us. Amen? Leonard Ravenhill preached about revival up until he died. Um, the disciple Keith Green, if you remember him, he says this. He says, no nation is better than its church, and no church is better than its people, because the church is made up of individuals. Only God-transformed personalities can change the moral fiber of a nation. It starts with you and I as an individual. If I decide that from this day on I'm going to serve the Lord and Him alone and revival breaks out in my heart, then it will spill over to my family. And maybe my family will experience revival because of my witness and testimony and we will bring it in here. And then maybe some of you will experience revival because of what we're doing and then you will take it out there. And little by little, like a small flame, it begins to turn into an inferno. But it has to begin with each one of us. So the choice is yours. And the choice is mine and what we plan on doing this. So I'm asking you, will you surrender all to him today? Right where you're at, will you surrender to him? Now we're going to take a a moment or two and I'm going to ask you to just pray silently and just give to him what you're holding back from him. And even if you fully know that if you give to him, you're probably going to mess up, he knows that too. But his faith, I mean, his Ability is sovereignly is stronger than your weakness. If you will just place your hand yourself in his hands, all of you.
Everything that I do, Lord, I want to do for your glory. And I'm willing to have that desire that he will begin the process of doing the rest. And then we're going to close in a song. So if you would, pray please.